Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, Prayers of King David, with a message titled, Thanksgiving for the King. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 21 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Psalm 21 is a psalm of thanksgiving for the king. Well, Psalm 21 is a companion to Psalm 20. And Psalm 20, when we studied that psalm, we saw that Psalm 20 was written to teach people how to pray for their king. And when I made application, I said, Psalm 20 is an excellent psalm for Christian people today to study and then to use as a template as to how they might pray for their Christian leaders. Well, Psalm 21 is a similar psalm, but this one is intended as a hymn of thanksgiving for the king. It's a hymn of gratitude. And in ancient Israel, that would be very important. Depending on when this psalm was written, and we can't be sure of when, but it might have been tempting for the people of Israel to be anything but grateful for King David. I mean, those who had supported King Saul now saw David on the throne. They might have harbored bitterness. Or those later on who became aware of David's weaknesses, even his sins, might have felt that they were justified in complaining against the king and not giving thanks for God's gift to them in King David. And here we do well to highlight an important point. It may have been possible for the people to agree to pray for their king, but not to be thankful for him. For some, that was a bridge too far. There were those in Israel who desperately wanted a different king. And we know this to be true, for when Absalom fomented his rebellion against his father, just think how many quickly followed him. And hardly had Absalom died when another man, Sheba, blew a trumpet in the land saying, we have no portion in David. Well, every leader, if that leader is at all godly, is aware of their own weaknesses and deficiencies. And truth be told, many of those who are being led are also aware of their leader's weaknesses and deficiencies. And so it seems to me that Psalm 21 is important for all of us. This is a psalm dedicated to those who were called upon to give thanks for the king that God had given to rule over Israel. And before we begin to read the psalm and study it, let's notice that this psalm naturally falls into three sections. The first section from verses 1 to 7, well, that's a reflection of God's gracious actions in the life of the king. And we will notice when we study this psalm how often the word you comes up. Each you refers to God. You, God, have blessed the king's life. And we, the people of Israel, are called upon to notice how you have blessed him. And then the second section of this psalm from verses 8 to 12, you know, still has the words you, but here the you, well, it might refer to the king. And as we study this section, we'll have to puzzle whether the you actually refers to the king or whether it refers to God. But here we're going to see that God will use the king in the future to accomplish great victories for the glory of God and for the good of the nation. Well, finally, in the last section, just one verse, that's verse 13, the people of Israel are called upon to address God who has given them their king. Well, very well. Let's begin by reading the first section of this psalm. It's Psalm 21, verses 1 to 7. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. 
for you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with joy in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Well, in order to understand this section, we do well to notice that verse 1 and then verse 7 form the bookends of this section. Verse 1 expresses thankfulness that the king rejoices in the strength of the Lord. And then in verse 7, again, thankfulness is given that the king trusts in the Lord. In short, Israel is to thank God that God in his kindness to them has given them a king who is godly. Notice then the signs of the godly king. Verse 1, King David is the kind of king who finds joy in the strength of God. He exalts, he revels, or he celebrates how God has saved him from his enemies. That is, Israel has the kind of king who credits God for his great victories. He's not the kind of king who takes credit for his accomplishments. This king gives glory to God. And then going on to the end of the section, verse 7, we find that the consequence of this action. Notice that the king puts his trust, his faith, his confidence in God. Furthermore, it's through the unmoving love of God for the king that the king remains unmoved and unwavering in the grace of God. Well, this means that their king is ready to give praise to God for all that he's been able to do. The king's not self-seeking. He's God-seeking. The king longs to know the ways of God. See, while the nation is thankful that the king acknowledges God, well, the nation should also notice that the king is not wrong in acknowledging God. Indeed, the king has been saved by God on numerous occasions when the cords of death had entangled the king. It was God who had rescued him. They should notice God's kindness to the king. And that's an important principle here. If God loves the king, those who might easily criticize the king or quickly point out the king's faults, they should remember. They should not take on the man who has been favored by God. What if it should be? that the people of Israel who seek the king's undoing are actually on the other side of the plans of God. See, at that point, they will do more than simply opposing the king. They will be opposing God. Now, should it be that those who are reluctant to give thanks for the king and unwilling to acknowledge that God has blessed the king, then the middle of this section gives us not just one, but five examples of how God has favored the king, that is, King David. Let's look at each one of these in succession. First, according to verse 2, King David has been given his heart's desire. God has answered the king's prayer. Now, we're not told exactly what prayers God answered, but we get a hint of this from verse 1. God has saved the king from his enemies. Look, Saul had hunted his life, and Saul had failed. God had saved David, and he had condemned Saul. Then God gave victory over the Philistines, and then victory over all the enemies that surrounded him, so that the borders of the nation became secure. Was that not God answering the prayers of the king? I mean, the only other possibility is that David's own strength accomplished this, and David never believed that, and neither should you. God answered the king's prayer. Now, second from verse 3. God set a crown on David's head. Look, the mere fact that David was king, that he was anointed as king, first by the prophet Samuel, then by the tribe of Judah, then by all Israel, was that not also the work of God? 
And then third from verse 4, here we have the king asking God for life and God responding by giving him length of days forever and ever. So what does that refer to? I mean, one possible explanation is the historical incident of 2 Samuel chapter 7, when through the prophet Nathan, God tells David that his throne shall endure forever and that the coming Messiah will sit on David's throne. God told King David that his throne was to be the one that would eventually rule the entire earth. Now, it is true God favored the king with an enduring kingdom, not a temporal one. But it's also true that David had actually not asked for an enduring kingdom. I mean, when Nathan the prophet came to David to announce this news about his kingdom, David was surprised and overwhelmed. Yet in Psalm 21, verse 4, what we're reading now, the length of days is specifically something that David had asked of God. And so it seems natural for me to interpret these words as saying that David has asked God for eternal life, and God gave him that promise. King David knew the reality of his sins forgiven and the promise of eternal life. See, that blessing should not be overlooked. The king was one of God's people, eternally his. God saw fit to grant King David that which he grants all who are his own. Now, the fourth blessing, it's in verse 5, is that God bestowed splendor and majesty on the king. Now, here, the splendor and majesty are surely a part of, you know, the king's lot in life. And these are the things that go along with being king. But the point here is not that David earned these things or he grasped them by fighting for them. It was not that way at all. Instead, the majesty was given by God. Then the fifth blessing, verse 6. And the ESV, the translation I'm using, says, you make him most blessed forever. And that's a legitimate translation, but scholars point out that there's an other equally valid translation that says, you make him a source of blessing forever. That is, God has seen fit that when he brings his Messiah into the world, that Messiah would come from the loins of David. David, most particularly, stands in line with God's plans to bring a blessing to the whole world. There are only a very few select individuals that stand in that line. Abraham, Moses, David. You know, of all of the choices, those are the key figures to bring God's covenant into the world. And so when Israel thinks about the king that God has given them, they need to remember that God has used him in a most unique way. Instead of focusing on his weakness, focus on what God has chosen to do through this man and be thankful. This past year, we've seen some groundbreaking advancements in terms of Back to the Bible Canada's international initiatives. This July, in partnership with Back to the Bible India and Sri Lanka, Bible teaching conferences were held with over 750 international church leaders and pastors attending collectively. One pastor wrote, Today I heard the wonderful guidance and teaching of the Word of God through Dr. John Newfeld. I praise the Lord for being given the opportunity to attend this conference. What a blessing. We're so humbled at the ways God is expanding this ministry on a global scale. So if you have a heart to see God's word sown around the world, then we invite you to consider donating towards our international efforts. You can do so at backtothebible.ca slash international or just call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
second section of Psalm 21 moves from the blessings that God has poured out onto King David to the hope of the victories that lie in store under his reign. If God has so blessed the king, and God's people are called upon to recognize this, what should happen in the future? I've already pointed out that there is some ambiguity in the text before us. Are we to think that the things that you will do, is that you a reference to what King David will do, or is it a reference to what God will do? But if we think of this psalm as a united whole, in which the people of Israel are called upon to give thanks to God for the king, then we should see that the things that are hoped for ultimately come from God, but they're accomplished through the king, King David. Look, if we argue that the focus of verses 8 to 12 is what God will do, then since the focus on verses 1 to 7 is on how God has blessed the king, we would then assume that the blessing would be accomplished by God through King David. But if we assume verses 8 to 12 is a reference to King David and what King David will yet do in the future, we have to assume that since the king rejoices not in his own strength, but in the strength of God, again, we come to the same conclusion. This is about what God will do through the king. So let's read Psalm 21 verses 8 to 12. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, although they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Now, clearly, from this description, we have to assume that in the future, with the help of God, King David is going to win a great many military victories. Indeed, reading this section of Psalm 21, it should remind us of Psalm 2. There we find God laughing at his enemies. He tells the enemies that he has set his king in Zion, in Jerusalem. And then in verse 10 of Psalm 2, the kings of the earth are warned to kiss the sun, lest the sun be angry with these kings, and they perish in the way. See, in the context of Psalm 2, the sun is David. And then in the wider context of that psalm, the sun also looks forward to the Messiah, who's going to sit on David's throne. So it's a psalm about Jesus. I'll come back to that at the point of application, but please notice the similarities. In the future, says Psalm 21, the king, David, will find out all his enemies. That is, he's going to discover who's an ally and who's plotting warfare against him. And even though the plots against King David might be hatched in secret places, David's going to discover it. I mean, we're not told how he's going to do that. I mean, does David have, you know, spies in foreign nations who report back to him? Or does God reveal those plots through the prophets who come and tell David about them? I mean, we're not told. I mean, nonetheless, these plots are going to come to light. And furthermore, when verse 8 says that his right hand will find them, that right hand is the hand of his power. The right hand in battle is the hand that typically holds the sword. And it's the hand of vengeance. That is, the punitive hand is going to find out the enemies. These kings may think that they have a plan to overthrow David, but David's power will discover them. What does verse 9 mean when it says they will become as a blazing oven? Well, normally the kind of oven that's being referred to here is that part of an oven in which the fire burns. That's the place you put the wood in. 
other burnable things. They heat the oven. That is, David's going to throw his enemies into the oven where they're going to be completely burned up. The description fits well with the second half of that sentence, which says, the Lord will swallow them up. Now, perhaps here David might have been reflecting on Korah's rebellion. I mean, that's the one that's spoken of in Numbers chapter 16. Now, there was a man by the name of Korah, and he incited a rebellion against Moses. And to make a long story very short, in the end, in order to demonstrate that God had chosen Moses and not Korah, at a particular moment in time, the earth split open. And Korah and his followers all tumbled down into the earth, along with their families, as well as all of their possessions, everything that they had, everything was swallowed up by the earth and it was no more. It may be that David was thinking of that very thing. When looking into the future, he saw that God would swallow up his enemies in his wrath. And so we have the picture of an oven. We have the picture of the earth swallowing up the enemies of God. They are being consumed. You know, some modern-day Christians, when reading verse 10, might well be shocked that it's not just the enemies of David who had been plotting his ruin. They're consumed, yeah, but also so are their offspring. But if you think about it, that's exactly what happened. Where are the Philistines today? They're all gone, and their offspring are no more. And what about the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, and so forth? You know, when I lead a tour group in modern-day Jordan, the land that occupies the place where these nations once lived, I like to point out that modern-day Jordanians are not the descendants of these people groups. Those ancient people groups are no more and are a warning to all those who would oppose the Lord. And so the rest of these verses are a repetition of that theme. David will prevail, his enemies will be defeated. And with that, the psalm comes to an end. Having been taught to give thanks for their king, for the way God has blessed him in the past, and having been taught to give thanks for their king, for the blessing he will bring to the nation in the future, the psalm then ends on a high note, and that's in verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. That verse reminds me of Psalm 18, 46. It says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. See, to pray, be exalted, O Lord. Well, that's to pray that God would showcase his glory in the reign of the king. And we are people recognizing that you have chosen to do that in King David are glad. Well, very good. But what does this mean for modern-day Christians who, you know, read this psalm today? You know, when we studied Psalm 20, the psalm of praying for the king, I said the best way to apply that is to be thankful for the godly leadership that God has appointed over the church today. Well, should Psalm 21 be used in the same way? I think not, because the description of King David that's given here really can't be applied to any modern-day Christian leader. For as important as their leadership might be, they will never be given a role in the history of God's plan for the world like that role which was given Abraham or Moses or David. For each of these men were chosen as forerunners of the Messiah, and their role is unique and it's never to be repeated. So it seems best to me then to think about Psalm 21 and use it as a template which is to be applied to our greater king to Jesus. Don't apply Psalm 21 to a Christian leader today. Apply it to Christ. Think about the glory of Jesus and thank God for the Savior that he has given us. I think that we should use Psalm 21 in this way. And if we do, it will begin to make sense to us and it will be meaningful to us.
The first section, the reason to give thanks for the king. Well, we might take as a reason to give thanks to God for Jesus. Look back at verse 2. You have given him the desire of his heart. And what did Jesus desire? Well, according to Matthew 20, verse 28, we're told that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' desire was to glorify the Father by giving his life to ransom men and women from every tribe and language and nation and people and tongue. Indeed, we need to recognize that the thing that Jesus desired the most, that is, to glorify his Father and to make of his glory as much as he could, and in that, to redeem a host of mankind, that the Father would be pleased with his Son and give the Son the desires of his heart. Don't you see? That's what has happened. Indeed, verse 3, the crown on his head is that Jesus would one day be seen by the entire world as King of kings and Lord of lords. And in verse 4, length of days forever and ever. Well, what can we say of that except that Jesus broke the bonds of death and stepped forth from his own tomb and defeated the powers of hell and the grave. And now he lives forever and ever with the power of an indestructible life. Well, how about the second half of the psalm? And that's the half that we read about in which we are told that the king will have victory over all of his enemies. And what can we say? But when when Jesus returns again, the Father will give the Son dominion over every single people group. Men and women throughout the earth will be required to bow before him. Some will come in agony and in horror, and others in great joy but the king will reign forever and ever in the future. Yet Psalm 21 is a psalm that teaches us today to look beyond King David and see the fulfillment of what David's life was all about. Let's give thanks to God the Father for Jesus, our Savior and our King. John, thanks so much. And thanks for a wonderful series. It was really thoughtful. You know, There's lots of reasons I guess we can look at for King David and be grateful to him, but there's a lot of things about King David that weren't so great. But how about King Jesus? Yeah, I mean, everything is great, right? And, uh, you know, it's impossible anyone complained, yes. Uh, And and the reality is um, that, you know, many of us are too pious to complain. But whenever we disobey his commands, we're just simply saying, it's too hard for me. Or whenever we, uh, you know, we, we struggle with the way in which he's called us to live. I mean, in essence, I think we're complaining. And I think the way to get around that, to ask God for an obedient heart, is begin by making note of all that Christ has accomplished for us and be overwhelmed with gratefulness. That's the beginning and that's the key. Thanks so much, John. And thanks for this great series. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. If you found yourself struggling with your self-esteem, I can assure you you're certainly not alone. Our self-esteem is fragile. It can blow up with kind words or accomplishments and crumble with failures or criticism. Wouldn't it be a relief to be liberated from the grip of external judgments and even our own self-doubts? Well, Timothy Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, shows us just that. Keller walks us through how centering our identity in Christ 
can eliminate the noise of opinions and judgments. That's why Back to the Bible Canada is offering this small but powerful booklet for free this month while supplies last. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate because supplies are limited.